Good morning. So, this, as Barry said, this is the last in our series on the characters of Easter. And the title of today's is I Was There. And you're all supposed to read that, not just me. <laughs> you know, it's not I was there, we were there. In November 1990, there was an accident that involved a small fishing vessel called the Antares and the submarine HMS Trenchant, where the Trenchant got caught in the Antares' fishing net. That resulted in the Antares sinking in the North Channel of Scotland, and unfortunately with the death of all four of the crew on board the fishing boat. As you'd expect for something like that, there were a number of inquiries and investigations into what happened. And I got involved because I was uh, required to attend the Naval Board of Inquiry as an expert witness because of the job I was doing at the time. What came out from that was that there was no single major cause of, of the accident. Nobody, no one person did one thing that led to that accident. Instead, there were a number of small things, the sort of things that happened every day, regularly, in the submarine and on the fishing boat, which came together all at the same time, and then there was some bad luck on top, and that's what resulted in the fatal accident. And if you think about it, isn't that always, or at least often, the pattern of accidents, of any accident, and of other bad events? If there was one single major cause, people see it coming. They do something to avoid it. But lots of little things, there was a terrible phrase, but when I was doing um, a course once, they described a thing called the boiled frog syndrome. They said, you drop a frog into a pot of boiling water, it jumps out. You put the, pot, the frog in the pot of water and put it on the gas ring, it swims there until it boils, because it doesn't feel the difference. It's that combination of multiple things coming together that cause problems. And in many ways, when we look at the Easter story, we see that same pattern of lots of little things coming together to do something terrible. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the various individuals and groups that were involved in the Easter story. We've looked at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We've looked at Judas, and they were the people who plotted against Jesus. We looked at the criminals who were crucified with Jesus and how they were affected by what they saw. And last week, Barry looked at the women who supported Jesus during his ministry at his crucifixion, and then seeking to show honor to his body after his death were the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. There were others, too, that we haven't had time in a short series to look at. There's Pilate, the crowd, the disciples. And I just want to quickly touch on some of those because it's pertinent as well. I mean, the biblical account is very clear that Pilate recognized Jesus was innocent of any crime worthy of death. Luke 23, 4, for example, says, Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. As the Roman governor, he could and should, therefore, have released Jesus at that point. But he was faced with insistent pressure of the Jewish leaders to execute Jesus. 
And history tells us that early in his tenure as governor of Judah, Pilate caused massive offense to the Jews by bringing the Roman standards, which had an image of the emperor on them, into Jerusalem. And this resulted in protests and a complaint being made to the emperor, which resulted in Pilate being censured by Tiberius, the emperor. Pilate was therefore vulnerable to pressure from the Jewish authorities. Although he wanted to release Jesus, the demand for Jesus' death from the authorities put him in a difficult situation. He had no legal grounds on one hand for executing Jesus, but if he offended the Jews again, then his career, possibly even his life, could have been on the line if the word went back to the emperor. In the end, we know, after trying various ploys to get himself off the hook, Pilate condemned Jesus to the cross. Then there's the crowd. They played a part in the Jesus' death. Now, many people down the years have said that the crowd in Jerusalem that first Easter were fickle. They cheered and praised Jesus on the Palm Sunday, and then they shouted for his death on Good Friday. And while it's true that we can be just as fickle as that today, think about the way public opinion can flip from approval to opposition towards prominent politicians or towards the managers and coaches of our favorite football team or whatever sport you follow, from when they're winning to when they're losing. It's likely that that's not the case here. There was a crowd that was shouting Hosanna on the, on the Palm Sunday. They were coming along the road from Jericho with Jesus and with the disciples, and presumably were on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover, just as Jesus was. In fact, Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 21, 8 and 9, describe the scene. But verse 10 indicates there were those who were in Jerusalem already, inhabitants certainly, potentially early arriving pilgrims, who wondered what was going on and who Jesus actually was. During the week before Passover, as Roy reminded us last week, Jesus stayed in Bethany. He returned there each night. You can see that in Matthew 21, 17. Given the number of people who came to Jerusalem for the Passover, it's very likely the majority of the crowd weren't from the triumphal entry wouldn't have been staying in Jerusalem itself. They'd have been camped outside it or in the surrounding villages. And why is that significant? Well, on the Thursday evening when Jesus was arrested, that crowd would have been in their camps or lodgings celebrating the Passover meal. Overnight, while Jesus was initially being tried by the Sanhedrin, they'd have been in bed. At first light, which is about 6.30 in the morning in, in April in Jerusalem, that was when the Sanhedrin could first make a legal judgment to condemn someone. The crowd would probably have still have been asleep, recovering from the previous night's festivities. And if you read the story of Jesus' trials, the trial before Pilate, both trials before Pilate, and before Herod, must have been quite short. After all, as we read this morning, Mark 15, 21 tells us by 9 o'clock in the morning, just two and a half hours after sunrise, Jesus had already been crucified. He was on his cross. And before he was crucified, there were those two trials. There was the journey to and from Herod, from Pilate, the journey from Pilate into the praetorium where the soldiers mocked and flogged Jesus, and then from there to the place of execution. 
it was possible at the point where the crowd in the trial for the trial were shouting for Jesus to be crucified was probably only about half past seven in the morning. And even if the crowd from the triumphal entry had been camping on the Mount of Olives, they'd woken up at first light, sorted their lives out, and gone straight down into Jerusalem, they probably wouldn't have got to the trial until about 7.30, and so they'd have been too late. And that assumes, of course, that they actually knew what was happening. Now, if they were camped on the Mount of Olives, they may have heard something. They may have heard the arrest party going to or from the Garden of Gethsemane. Did they get awakened by the disturbance in the night? You know, wonder what it was when you hear a dog barking in the night and go back to sleep? Did they decide it was nothing to do with them? Or hear the noise and think, That's, that sounds like armed men. I'm not going out there. That's far too risky to go and investigate. But if that is the case, who were the crowd at Jesus' trial? Given the time in the morning, most likely they were servants and supporters of the chief priests and the scribes, plus any others the rulers could gather up off the street, which wouldn't have been many at that time of the morning, people who could be persuaded or bribed to do what they were told. Matthew 27, 20 says the chief priests persuaded the crowd, and then I think one of the other versions said they bribed them. But the last cloud group to think about in these events are the disciples. We last see them together in Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. And thereafter, they scattered. Peter and John initially fled with the others, but then they followed Jesus to the high priest's house. But of course, Peter subsequently denied Jesus. John appeared again at the cross with Mary, Jesus' mother, in John 19, 25 and 27. Despite their earlier bold words about standing by Jesus, they'd been unable to live up to their assertions. Indeed, Matthew tells us in 26, 36 to 46, they couldn't even stay awake and pray with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They fell asleep three times. But having looked at the people involved and, the action, and their actions, we can ask ourselves, what sins crucified Jesus? Now, it would be easy and in many ways comfortable to believe there were a few, or even one, particularly evil sin that led to Jesus' death, sins that we could lay at the feet of those who were physically present at that event 2,000 years ago, and therefore nothing to do with us. Now, there is one common sin, of course, that so many of the people who contributed to Jesus' death had, was that they didn't recognize him as the Messiah, the Son of God. But beyond that, there isn't really any single major evil thing that any person or group did that led on its own or in a small denomination to the greatest sin of all of crucifying the Son of God. What there is, as in the case of the Antares and the Trenchants, is an accumulation we would probably call as small sins. Small sins done by various people that led to Jesus' death. And if nothing else, I think that indicates that there are no such thing as small sins. Any small sin will lead to something worse. Let's look at them. The Pharisees, for example, they opposed Jesus because they were jealous of his popularity compared to theirs. And they were angry about his attitude to them. Can any of us say that we have never been jealous of someone? 
or never been angry about the way we've been treated. And our attitudes influence how we perceive things. The Pharisees' attitude to Jesus colored their view of his teaching. Jesus' authority they saw as blasphemy. His inclusiveness of outcasts from religious society, the tax collectors, the sinners, the unclean, the lepers, and even Gentiles, horror of horrors, the Pharisees saw as disloyalty to their nation and people, and this led them to believe that Jesus was a threat to the nation and the Jewish faith. The Sadducees took notice of Jesus when he attacked their income in the temple by turning over the money changers' tables. But what became of concern to them was the risk he posed as a popular leader and the crowds he drew. They were worried that Jesus could intentionally or otherwise cause riots or even worse, an insurrection, a rebellion against the Romans. This would result in the Romans taking action that would throw the Sadducees out of power or could even destroy Israel as a nation. And that's actually what happened in AD 72. Their opposition to Jesus, therefore, was a combination of self-interest and political expediency. Caiaphas summed it up in John 11:49 to 50 when they were arguing about what they should do about Jesus, and he said, you don't understand. It's better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. But again, are we any better? Would we do any better in their position? Think back over your life. Have you ever taken an action that works for you, for me, to the detriment of someone else? Even if it's just taking the largest slice of cake for the shared lunch later on, which I just quite cut it today. And what about Judas's sin? Why did he betray Jesus? Well, as Roy told us uh, a couple of weeks ago, it seems he saw the end of his dream of getting rich on Jesus' coattails and sought to get what he could in the limited opportunity left to him. In the end, he was greedy and he was after money. Paul could well have had Judas in mind when he wrote 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmless desire, harmful desires that plunge people into sin, into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But before we throw too many stones at Judas, what about us? What's our attitude to money? Do we see money as something given to us by God as a resource to use and to give in his service, as the women who supported Jesus did? Or do we treat money as something to be held onto, stored away, held or kept for our pleasure and our benefit? Do we think like the world where money and possessions are something to be desired in their own right, something to be fought for? Or do we follow Jesus' teaching from Matthew 6, 19 and 21, where he said, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consume, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then let's look at Pilate. As we saw earlier, he was placed in a difficult position. 
from his actions, we can see that Pilate lacked the moral strength to stand for what he knew was right. He put his career and his security before justice, and as a result, condemned a man he knew had done nothing wrong sending Jesus to the cross. But again, are we any better? The decisions we make might not be as serious, as critical as those that Pilate had to make. But the choices we make still reveal our hearts. How often have we avoided talking about our faith, about Jesus, because we're afraid of the consequences or we're embarrassed? But what about the consequences for the person who doesn't hear about Jesus because we fail to witness? And of all the people we've been looking at, we can probably most relate to the crowd. Ordinary people, going about their everyday lives. People like us. But even if we accept there were two distinct crowds, the one that praised Jesus and the one that wanted him crucified, both fell short at the, on that first day. The crowd that shouted crucify him had perhaps the more obvious sin. They let themselves be manipulated by the chief priests. They went along with everyone else, even if potentially they felt that something wasn't right. They showed an attitude which you could probably sum up as saying, don't confuse me with the fact my mind is made up. Pilate was desperately trying to find an excuse to free Jesus, but no matter how much he pointed out that Jesus was innocent, no, many, how many, no matter how many opportunities he gave the crowd to choose Jesus to be freed, they just shouted even more for Jesus' blood. The crowd from Palm Sunday, on the other hand, were too busy getting ready for their day, recovering from the party the night before, failing to be aware of what was happening. If they'd heard the disturbance the previous night, they didn't think it was anything to do with them. In other words, they were putting themselves first and anything else was second. So when we look at our world, we see the trouble and the needs around us, whether it's in town, whether it's in other countries, do we take that same attitude? It's nothing to do with me. Do we unquestioningly accept the spin that's presented on TV, in the papers, in social media, or in groups that we're part of? Or do we make an effort to think for ourselves, to make our own judgment based on the evidence? Are we willing to take a stand for what we know is right, to lead by example in Jesus' way, or do we just stay quiet and assume that someone else is going to act, someone else is going to take the It's slightly scary, interesting. If you look across the world and through history, ordinary people working together have shown they, they are incredibly powerful. Think back to that Jerusalem in, in Jesus' time. The religious leaders feared the crowd. We know that from Matthew 21, 24 and 27. A little bit behind there. Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. They'd been, he'd been questioned by the um, leaders about his authority. You tell me the answer, Jesus said. I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And the leaders argued with one another, said, if we say from heaven, he'll say for us, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd. They might stone us. But all regarded John as a prophet. So they had to answer Jesus, we don't know, because they were afraid. 
In our own time, we've seen the power of ordinary people in the fall of communist regimes in Eastern, Eastern Europe. We saw it in the Arab Spring, where the dictators down there fell. And today, if we look at the situation in Russia, we can see even Vladimir Putin is afraid of his people. Otherwise, why would he shut down the sources of information that would tell them the truth about what's happening in Ukraine, rather than what he wants them to know? And why would there be head laws which restrict what people can say and do? You know, 15 years for saying it's a war. That's not someone who's happy with his people knowing what's going on. And then finally, let's think about the disciples. What was their sin? Well, they were overconfident in their own abilities. Peter was adamant he would never betray Jesus. But just a few hours later, he denied Jesus three times. When Jesus was arrested, they ran away. Most of them didn't even go to Golgotha to give what support to Jesus they could in his final hours. And even after they'd been told Jesus was alive, they hid away for fear of the authorities. John 20, 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples met were locked for fear of the Jews. In Gethsemane, Jesus told them to watch and pray, but instead they slept. They relied on their own strength, not on God's, and as a result, they failed. So how strong is our prayer life? Are we relying on God's strength or ours? If we want to avoid the sort of sins that we've seen took Jesus to the cross, we've got to rely on God. We've got to surrender our lives to him. Let him give us the strength, the moral courage through the Holy Spirit to stand up for what is right, to put him first, others second, and ourselves last. Jesus was crucified by an accumulation of ordinary, everyday sins, the sins that you and I commit quite often. The old spiritual asks, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The answer has to be yes. We were. I was. You were. Those were my sins and yours that nailed Jesus to that cross. My selfishness, my greed, my failure to live up to my standards. My standards, not God's standards, not, not even God's standards. Yet Jesus died for a reason. Not just because of Peter's sins, he died to pay the penalty for all those sins. As John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. On that cross, Jesus broke the power of sin to save us. And as Christians, individually and as a church, we need to be following another example. There's another way that we should be in that first Easter, the question then is, are we? Is to follow the example of those women on that first Sunday, on that first Easter Sunday. They'd stood by Jesus despite the risks, even at the foot of the cross, when all the men had run away. They went to anoint his body on the Sunday morning, despite the, again the risks that came with it. And because they did, they were the first people to find out that Jesus had risen from the dead. 
They were the first people to say that Jesus not only broken the power of sin, he'd broken the power of death as well. And they ran to tell others the good news. Are we willing to be that sort of witness for the Lord? The ones that don't go to witness but run to witness because we see the need that other people have? But we were all at Calvary another way too. There were two other men crucified with Jesus that day. Luke tells us in uh, chapter 23, verse 32, they were evildoers. And so are we in God's sight. By our sins, we have all earned death. Both physical death, which has infected the world, and eternal separation from God after death. We are all there at Calvary on one of those two other crosses, one either side of Jesus, justly facing death. But are we going to be like the criminal who mocked and taunted Jesus even as he died? Or are we going to be like the one who repented of his wrongdoing, turned to Jesus, recognized him as king, as king and asked to be remembered? The choice we make is critical. Will we reject Jesus? and face the eternal consequences of that? Or will we choose life, trust in Jesus, in the salvation he freely offers, and live our lives in the power of his Holy Spirit? This is the choice before each one of us. It's a choice that is yours, a choice that you have to make. But I would just say, if God is calling to you, if God is speaking to you today, don't put off deciding. Choose life. Choose Jesus.